This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Thursday, November 17th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And we all know that the financial industry gives more to Republicans under the theory that Democratic control of government and the tax code won't reward them as much. Republican politicians, in turn, court the favor of the wealthy in the world of finance with promises of a stable business environment in which to maximize profits. And almost none of the above statement is true or has been true for the last couple of years. According to Open Secrets of the financial slash real estate slash insurance industry, the giving went more to Democrats than to Republicans. This cycle, that was the case. Last cycle, it was the case. In fact, last cycle, we're giving us more during a presidential election. $513 million from these industries went to Democrats, 473 to Republicans. A huge reason for the Democratic lead was the political giving of George Soros. But number two this time around, as a giver to liberal and Democratic causes, not exclusively, but on net, the second biggest was defrocked and defaulted high priest of crypto, Samuel Bankman-Fried. Samuel Bankman-Fried may not be, after the Bahamian government gets done with him, though relocating to the Bahamas was a move specifically made to operate free from U.S. banking rules. How'd that work out for everyone? Bankman-Fried is the founder of the crypto exchange FTX. FTX, as in ex-billionaire Samuel Bankman-Fried. I'm fascinated by his come down to earth in a slightly different way than I was the fall of Elizabeth Holmes or WeWork or Bernie Madoff. Bankman Freed is the son of Stanford law professors. He's chums with the Clintons and Giselle Bündchen. He's an inveterate wearer of shorts everywhere. With his unruly mane of hair and his investments, hundreds of millions, in charitable causes dear to progressives, it does make you wonder how much of his persona was an act designed to get in the good graces of those who should have been scrutinizing him, and how much wasn't a persona, just was him as a person. As Silicon Valley has taken a more cold libertarian streak, a less hopeful one, look at Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, himself a huge political donor this cycle, the efforts of SBF were held up as something of a corrective. What an idealistic young man whose motivation seemed only to make the world safe for public health initiatives, environmental advancements, and his own ability to dress like a slob no matter the setting. Just a side note, is this a warning sign for the inappropriately baggily shorted? I beseech John Fetterman and Kevin Smith to take notice. So as we find out more about SBF, I want to know about the depths of his deceit. But I'd also really love an insight as to his true motivation, as much as we can know, as much as anyone could even know about themselves. The New York Times today had an interview with his psychologist, who actually served more as a business coach than a therapist, thereby allowing on-the-record discussions of Bankman-Fried's psyche. But once we really know what drove the shabbily outfitted entrepreneur, I then want a thorough analysis of what we, his media enablers, missed 
and why we missed it. On the show today, I spiel about that close, close race in Colorado. Unsigned ballots are the disease. Curing the ballots is the cure. Literally, that's what they call it, curing. But first, Gordon Sunland, former U.S. ambassador to the EU, was on yesterday to talk about his time in the Trump administration and the precipitating events of his ouster, namely testifying under oath during the first impeachment inquiry. Now, in this part of the interview, I will expand out to talk about foreign policy overall, how the foreign policy apparatus works or should work, and also ask, once you pay a million dollars for a ticket to the inauguration, do you get an actual physical ticket? Is it a QR code? Do they give you a butler whose only job it is to carry around the QR code on parchment? How does it work? Gordon Sondland, author of The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yesterday, we talked to former U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, and the conversation was mostly about the end of his tenure, testifying during the impeachment inquiry and the days after. Just barely days, with the plural, he was fired literally two days after President Trump was acquitted. Today, the talk turns to how Sondland got the job, and if he thinks it's the best way to go about choosing a diplomatic corps via donation and party loyalty. So, Sondland was a Republican donor. He wasn't a Trump backer. As a Portlandian, he works with Democrats, but he supported Jeb Bush in 2016, Mitt Romney in 2012, but he was a Republican who came to support his party's nominee, Donald J. Trump. I began by asking if when he gave money, very much, a lot of money to Trump, where did he land between hope and expectation on the idea that he might get an appointment out of it? Well, in the envoy, I walk people through the process because as a as a base as a base case here, I'm a big proponent of political appointees. I think that the press and the uh, intelligentsia at Georgetown and at the Foreign Service Institute have it wrong. I think they have it backwards. I think we should have more political appointees, not less. And that's a that's a discussion for a different day. But my selection as an ambassador. Uh, was no different than all of the other ambassadors who came before me under Trump, under Biden, under Obama, under Bush. It's all the same. It doesn't matter which party. It has to right, do. Of course not. It has to do first of all with the 35 years I toiled in the Republican trenches, beginning with George H. W. Bush in 1988, and I worked as a volunteer. I gave coffee hours, I bundled, I drove candidates around, I made phone calls. So when it was my time up to bat, which was under Trump, I couldn't do it under Bush because my business wasn't at a point where I could leave for four years and be an ambassador. I supported McCain, he lost. I supported Romney, he lost. I supported Jeb, he dropped out. So Trump was my next opportunity. So my calculus was binary. 
there are things about Trump I don't like. I don't like, you know, I make me squeamish. On the other hand, is the Republican nominee, do I want to wait another four, eight, 12 years to get another opportunity? And this is such a hard job to get and so difficult to get through the process. When it's your time at bat, you take the, you take the job. And as I said in the Envoy, my first call was to President Bush. And President Bush, I know, is no fan of Donald Trump. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, you got to take the job. It's your time. You've been given the opportunity. You got to serve your country. So taking into account all of the scut work you did and all of the bundling and the driving, there was also the donations, which uh, I'm actually not making a judgment on. I just want your, go, go I'm ahead, curious go about ahead, a couple judge things. Away. <laughs> no, I mean, this is how, like, this is how the system works. And if you're operating within the system, you're not creating it or exploiting it. But first of all, is there, it can't be explicit, but is there a level of donation that you're told, okay, this puts you in the running? Or is it more of you have to do it by feel? Do you ask other people who donate? You know, what do you think? Do you think there needs to be six zeros after this one? How does that work? Well, the the, the joke, that is told often the apocryphal story is apparently some donor under Nixon was told that if they gave a quarter of a million dollars, they'd become the ambassador to Costa Rica. And the Mm -hmm. woman who was offered this said, isn't that expensive for Costa Rica? Um, (laughs) The reality is the reality is this. Yes. The amount you raise, the loyalty you show, how early you came in, it's not a science, it's an art. I can tell you, for example, that there were people at the very lowest point of the Trump campaign when everyone thought it was over after the TMZ tapes were released. The Trump folks had a colathon to try and keep donors from bailing. And there's one individual who gave a total of $50,000. He raised it, he didn't even give it himself. And he was given a very, very nice ambassadorship. And that's almost unheard of because $50,000 in the bundling world when you're raising millions and millions isn't even table stakes. But he was rewarded Mm -hmm. for, he also had served the Republican Party for years. But I think he was rewarded by President Trump and by the committee that decided who gets which ambassadorship. He was rewarded for his loyalty. So it's not always the money. I didn't even contribute to the campaign. Uh, At the end, I bought a ticket to the inauguration. I bought a $1 million ticket. There were about 60 $1 million tickets sold to the inauguration. Only two of the people who bought those tickets got ambassadorships. So if you think there's Mm -hmm. a direct nexus between you write a million dollar check and you get an ambassadorship, that's clearly not the case. Is there, by the way, a physical ticket for a million dollars? Or is it just known? It's just known. <laughs> a QR code. <laughs> um, okay. I am interested in the idea that you think that there should be more political appointments. I read your arguments. There's there is um, fodder for thought there. But should the political appointments be, if not totally determined by donating huge monies, huge amounts of money, largely influenced by that part of which pol- which people are selected as the political appointees. Does that serve America well? Okay, you're going to be very cynical now when you hear my answer. I can already see the look on your face, so get ready for it. 
<laughs> it's not based on money. It's based on success. Okay. Mm-hmm. And success ah. and money are often coupled. What, what a political appointee can do that a career uh, ambassador cannot do, the most important thing they can do is break the chain of command. There is no chain of command for the political appointee. Depending on his or her relationship with the president, with the secretary of state, with the national security advisor, with the White House chief of staff, or the people in a leadership position, they can circumvent a very, very arduous and arcane uh, layering of, of, uh, of an org chart and go directly to the decision makers and make things happen uh, for the United States in their host country. A career person, except under the most extraordinary conditions, can't do that. In fact, if they tried, they'd lose their job. So I would argue that someone who was a successful business person, educator, uh, who came from the private sector and had shown a level of success in leadership and in running an organization is ideally suited, if they're serious, is ideally suited for this job. Mm. Do you think if you did the analysis, the retrospective analysis, you would find that there was a uh, a P coefficient, a correlation closer to one than zero for that success in the private sector and success in the uh, role of ambassador or foreign service? Well, let's let's think about what tools you need in order to be an ambassador. First of all, uh, the pay is terrible considering the cost. You're a government. So it helps to have a nest egg. Yes. Yeah, you have to have a nest egg. You have to have some other, you know, means of support. And in order to do the job properly, to entertain, to travel, uh, to make things happen, you have to pay for those things out of your own pocket. Largely, the government has no representational budget. So I spent, you know, I was paid. I think my salary was one hundred and fifty or one hundred and sixty thousand a year. And during the two or three years, I think I spent two or three million dollars of my own cash doing my job Mm. between paying for flights that the government wouldn't reimburse, entertaining all kinds of other things. And so it requires a certain amount of wealth in order to do the job properly. So, yes, there are two there are two pathways to being an ambassador. You can go to school, you can work your way up the ranks through the Foreign Service, and you can be an ambassador that way, or you can enter at the highest level after having proven yourself to your party, Democrat or Republican, and had a a, a modicum of success in the private sector, and I think both are equally valid. Mm, This is interesting, and I'm just thinking of the presidential appointees who had great success in the private sector. And I don't know that they've been the most successful. You know, McNamara was uh, president of Ford. I don't think that he is one of the best and the brightest. Did great on Vietnam policy. And I think about members of the Trump administration who was extremely successful, Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin. I don't know that those were extremely successful cabinet secretaries. I guess you could say the same about some of the mill. I think Wilbur and Stephen were hugely successful based on my dealings with them. Uh-huh. Well, I think that, uh, you know, well, you would know better than I, but I read, I certainly read a lot of coverage about how towards the end, Wilbur Ross was not very involved in the job of Commerce Oh Secretary. my God. I've never seen anyone work harder than Wilbur. I mean, Wil- at being Commerce oh, Secretary. My God. Oh, absolutely. I guess he, I guess I read that he never showed up in Washington. He no. was doing it from afar. No, Will, yeah. no. You know why he didn't show up in Washington? 
He didn't show up in Washington because he was on the road all the time. When I had a deal to do with the Europeans and I called Wilbur for help, he was on a plane at a moment's notice to sit in the meeting with me and help me close the deal because I needed the heft of a cabinet member. Wilbur was oh, good. Was he good at it? He did was, you say? Did you say? I see what makes this guy a billionaire. He was incredibly good at it. He was incredibly good at. It. I think the press coverage on Wilbur Ross was abysmal. I, I I mean I can't believe some of the stories I read when the guy worked his ass off and was really really effective. As I went through in one of the stories in the Envoy about the German car makers. We orchestrated a dinner with the heads of the three big German car manufacturers in Brussels. Wilbur flew in just for that dinner and then left after it. Without Wilbur at that dinner, we would have never gotten the investments in the plants in the southeast part of the United States that we got out of the Germans. No, no, I have nothing but the highest regard for Wilbur, and I think the press coverage was terrible. So one of the main theses of the envoy is that you got to know how to handle Trump. And from your insight as a businessman and just living life, you got some insight as to that. And I've heard you in interviews and in the book, you talk about here's the kind of guy Trump is and here's how you handle him. But my question, forgive me for its pointedness, is what is the proof that you handled Trump well? Well, up until I was fired... <laughs> which had nothing to do with the way I handled Trump. It had to do with what we discussed earlier, my, my having to, to testify uh, at, the, uh, at the impeachment hearing. Up until that point, uh, I felt like I had the access I needed when I needed it. He would take my call, he would return my call, he would see me when I needed to see him. And I tried not to abuse that privilege because I realized he had a few other things to do other than deal with the ambassador to the EU. So from an accessibility standpoint, he was great. From a decision-making standpoint, I would get very, very, not belligerent, but very curt with him. And I would say, look, door number one, you get this, door number two, you get that, door number three, you get this. I need to make a decision in an hour. Which do you want? Or do you want me to not make a decision and kick the can? And I knew he was not a can kicker. Trump liked to move forward all the time. He always likes to move forward. So my own personal like, experience. Like a shark. Like a shark. Afraid of, like, like a sure. shark. Yeah. And my own personal <laughs> experience with him, he's the only actual boss I've ever had because I've always been self-employed. I found the process sometimes maddening and frustrating, but on balance, I found him to be a very good boss. Even though, again, I would not support him for president uh, in 2024 for the reasons I already stated. Mm -hmm. And so little things like when he takes out a box of Tic Tacs and gives himself one and you say, I'm quoting yourself from your book, what the fuck aren't you going to share? You literally said that I to did. him on the tarmac? No, I said it to him. At <laughs> and the he White liked it. I said it to him at the White House. Well, no, he didn't like it. He was actually sheepish because his mind never thinks about the other person. That was the point I was trying to make by the story. It wasn't that he wouldn't share his Tic Tacs. It was the fact that that is emblematic of how he thinks. It's always me, me, me. It's never you or us. And so I'm, you know, I'm just used to if I pull out a pack of gum and you're standing next to me, if there's another stick of gum in the pack, I'm going to hold it out to you and offer it to you or a, or a mint right. or something like that. It's just a common courtesy. You know, it's like opening the door for someone that you're walking ahead of. He doesn't think that way. And so that was the point I was trying to make with that story. Yes, I did say what the fuck. And all the aides standing around the room 
Uh, you should have seen the mouths hanging open. Did that ambassador just say <laughs> what the fuck to the president? And the answer is yes, I did. Not ex- not very diplomatic, but it worked. I don't know. Maybe it's a germ thing with him and the sharing <laughs> the mints. But but you know, one criticism of him, and you can answer if you think it's an apt criticism or how it folds into your thesis of how to deal with Trump. Criticism is he often gives the impression that yes, 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 he's on board with uh, during the conversation he's having, but then essentially goes with the last conversation he's had. And uh, Kelly and McMaster, but essentially, but especially Kelly, when he was chief of staff, recognized this dynamic and tried to make sure that the last person he heard was the last person he was supposed to hear. So did you see that? And how does, if that's true, uh, your dealings with Trump, what do you do um, given that your the strong reaction you got from him might not be the lasting reaction? Well, that's a really good question. Yes, I did see that. That's very typical of a real estate person who's always, until the last second, is always trying to figure out, did I get the best deal? Am I missing something? Is there a better opportunity? That's just the way our mind works. And so I had a lot of simpatico with him or someone like him, because I think the same way. So the answer to your question is, I would push for a decision. Once I got the decision, my goal was to execute it immediately so that I could have a train left the station conversation with him. Mm. Yes, I know you changed your mind, sir, but the train's already left the station. Based on our conversation, I've already gone ahead and told the people we're doing that and it's already happening. And most of the time he said, okay, fine. You know, I should have, I should have called you. (laughs) Does that mindset, I'm sorry, this is just very interesting to me, but is the real estate mindset or the transactional mindset maybe optimal when dealing with enemies, but under-optimized when dealing with allies? What a great question. And the answer is this. I don't think this really has to do with his real estate mentality as I just described it. This has to do, this is a crusade he'd been on for decades before he even ran for president. If you go back and listen to old interviews, even from the 90s and the 80s, he thought fundamentally Europe was still trying to act like a needy child when, in fact, they're bigger than we are in many respects. And he thought that president after president from both parties placated them instead of treating them as an adult and saying, look, let's quit with all the we love each other and it's lovey-dovey and you're our friends. Okay, that's all fine. We love each other and you're our friends. However, how come we're getting screwed in this particular transaction and that particular transaction. And then he tried to find leverage in order to fix that imbalance, which no president up till him had done it in such a public and forceful way. And it obviously ruffled feathers. And I was one of the chief spokespeople for that policy. And frankly, it was uncomfortable for me for about a minute. And then once I saw how the Europeans really treated us, when I got under the hood and checked the engine, he was 100% correct. And I had no problem looking a European leader in the eye and saying, listen, if you're not going to fix this problem, we're out of here. The name of the book is The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. Gordon Sondland, thanks so much for your time. What a great talk. Thank you.
And now the spiel. America's closest congressional race is in Colorado's third district, one of the country's 10 largest by size, not counting districts like Alaska and Wyoming that are entire states. Republican Lauren Boebert and challenger Adam Frisch are separated by now 670 votes, which was closer than last night's 1,100 votes. It may well all be within the margin of automatic recount. So a few votes, but a vast chasm of principles and priorities separate Bobert and Frisch. After a deadline of midnight last night to fix mistakes on ballots, there are maybe a couple thousand votes left to count. Well, to count and to cure, which should be the motto of every local election board. Curing a ballot is more like curing a patient than curing a ham. It doesn't transform the ballot, it saves it. But like a popular method of ham curing, it does leave some voters salty. They feel like... uh that they're being um, ostracized or somehow put out because their signature didn't match and now they're being harassed. That was Pueblo County Clerk Gilbert Bo Ortiz quoted on KUSA Channel 9. But let's step back and analyze this complaint. If a ballot needs curing, it means that there was a mistake on the ballot. Maybe no date, maybe a signature that was inconsistent with the last time someone signed. So these party officials are making an effort to count the votes of citizens. By all accounts, a very, very high rate of curing is taking place, 65% or so, according to The Chieftain, higher than many people have ever seen. So the party officials are maybe being a little pushy. But if voters don't want to be disenfranchised, and the fact that they voted in the first place indicates that they don't, you would think they would appreciate the efforts to correct mistakes. The Colorado Sun has a much better story on the phenomenon than KUSA did. KUSA focused only on one source, the aforementioned Bo Ortiz, saying this whole thing is turning off voters. The Sun quoted six citizens who were all impressed or, quote, amazed at the efforts to correct mistakes. There was the son of a blind woman. There was the Bobert voter who said, quote, they were very firm to me about getting my vote, which I appreciated. There was the Frisch voter who said, quote, everybody who's been calling me seems to have good intentions and very few questions. And then there was one grouse in that Colorado Sun story who asserted, quote, voters have the right to cure their ballot. They also have the right to not cure. That person would be Pueblo County Clerk Bo Ortiz doing a media blitz about the right to be disenfranchised. I don't get it. But I've been thinking about Colorado's third and Lauren Boebert, a member of the Freedom Caucus, whose gun-toting, mass-cating, bomb-throwing ways seem to have overstepped the natural red inclinations of her own district. I would love a Boebert defeat. Notice I didn't even frame it as a fresh win. Purging her from the likes of her party would fortify the democratic process overall, and I would argue even the Republican Party. And even though she's ahead by a little bit now and like we said, within the margin of an automatic recount, if she does in fact win, her defeat would be delicious and deserved. That's when you get when your priorities are so misaligned with even voters who are inclined to back your own party. However, I am a believer in pluralism, and I believe in representative government. And one under-examined aspect of the Boebert phenomenon is all the regular Republicans in Colorado's third who are being denied actual representation, representation that they would like, a representative in the House of Representatives who would represent them well. 
Pueblo, the biggest city in the district, is more liberal than the rest of the district overall, but it still reflects Republican sensibilities. KRDO reported that people there are not happy with the latest opening. Controversies brewing over the opening of an abortion clinic in Pueblo. Tonight, taxpayers are pushing back after not having an abortion clinic for more than a decade. And a fairly aggressive measure to punish the homeless failed by one vote at the city council. Again, I would be a yes vote on an abortion clinic and a no vote on the sit and lie measure to criminalize homelessness. But I'm not the typical voter of Colorado 3. Do you really think they want a New York financier who lives in a resort town to represent their interests? This isn't the ideal of governance envisioned by the Constitution. I have nothing against Adam Frisch. He'd not only get my vote, but he gets my sympathy if he wins, affording Aspen on a congressman's salary. But it's just a measure of how wackadoo candidates don't just pervert the system of government they're sworn to uphold. They betray so many voters who simply did not send them to Congress to bluster and embarrass the folks back home. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced in an assistant capacity by Corey Wara, who donated $500,000 to the campaign of Marianne Williamson in order to become the ambassador to Endor. Joel Patterson, just senior producer, once slipped $100 to Tom Steyer, not to get a posting, but just so the guy could buy himself a better fitting pair of jeans. Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions, a position she earns every day by doing the scut work of securing not the coffee, but the coffee maker for Peachfish HQ, also driving around dignitaries and cat carriers to the vet. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, and thanks for listening. Because I've got a golden ticket. I've got a golden twinkle. 